Hey everybody, and welcome to My Dog Ate My Email, an email podcast from the DMA. This is the very first podcast in this series, focusing on everything to do with email. My name is Lily Boev, and I'm the Director of Client Success at Vuture. I have been working with the DMA for the last three years, officially an email council member for the last year and a half. And with me today, I have two of my very esteemed colleagues from the DMA email council. I've got Jenna Tiffany and Steve Henderson. Hi everyone, I'm Jenna Tiffany. So I am the founder and strategy director of digital consultancy called Let's Talk Strategy. Uh, We work with a broad range of clients, both big and small, but some of those include Hilton and Shell on creating and optimizing their email strategies. Um, Aside from that, I am a chartered marketeer. I've been awarded the fellow of the IDM this year. Um, And I also speak all over the world about email marketing. So it's great to now do a podcast for the email council. Hi, everyone. My name is Steve Henderson. I'm the head of deliverability at Amasis. I'm also the the vice chair of the DMA email council. I've been working in digital marketing and email marketing for 10 or 12 years now. And it's, it's what I do. It's what I live and breathe. And I'm really excited to be part of these podcasts. For the benefit of, of everyone listening, if you're not familiar with the DMA, it stands for the Data and Direct Marketing Association. I think they've recently renamed themselves. And they're the kind of the, the trade body for the marketing industry. And the three of us uh, sit on the email council. So the DMA, the, the bulk of the DMA work is done by the members of the different councils that help to shape the industry. They help to support practitioners, to guide best practice, uh, to to kind of lobby the, the the government, especially when we've got such large legislative changes. And so we help to support the the industry as a whole. And we really care about email and probably most of us self-professed email geeks. Yeah, maybe. Kind of turns me on a little bit. (laughs) I'm not going to go that far. I do like a really good email, though. I do like a really good email, but maybe not that much. (laughs) So this um, uh, for this very first podcast that we're going to be recording, just just to kind of cautionary words is this is the first time we're ever recording anything like this so if the audio quality perhaps isn't as best as some of the very highly produced podcasts you may listen to apologies we will figure it out as we go along yeah we we will get better and hopefully steve next time you won't be so quite so sick either yes (laughs) um so so for, for this first podcast we thought we would look at the impact of GDPR for the industry as a whole. It caused a huge, huge amount of turmoil in the kind of latter months of last year and in the early months of this year. But really, I wanted to focus less on what happened before GDPR because it was a bit of a nightmare for everybody. But what's actually happened since then? What's what's changed in email and with the industry as a whole. And with your uh, kind of compliance hat on, and I know you have a lot of opinions, uh, Steve, do you want to kind of give us an overview of, of what you what you think has, has happened since GDPR? Yeah, well, if I just take just half a step 
before that. And we look at the couple of weeks in the build-up to before GDPR, GDPR hit in, in May. Um, it was it was crazy. The the amount of conversation and web traffic was just it it was phenomenal. The the ramp up from people not really talking about it to the week before it hit, it was an exponential curve. And I, I looked on on Google Trends to look at the the search terms for um, for GDPR, and the the graph is incredible. Jenna's actually um, just showed it to me on the screen. It's insane. It's insane. It's, it's, you know what it was? It was a, I've, and I've spoken about this quite a bit since um, since GDPR came into play. It really was a window of opportunity, is how I saw it. A missed window of opportunity um, when you you think you have two years to get ready, and then you just see this huge huge spike literally the day before. Is uh, yeah. no, it's an amazing. It, it's graph. crazy. <laughs> and, and then, but this, what's weird? is that the graph after the 25th of May, it just drops and it's nothing. And there's, there's, a couple of, um, there's a couple of ways of interpreting this. One, everyone got everything ready. Um, or everyone was just scared to search anymore. And, and I think that there's a, um, although a lot of companies did actually um, do a, a lot of good work in the build-up, I think there's so much that is still to be done, but people are actually scared to raise their head above the parapet. Now, have you two seen a similar a similar thing? Yeah, I've, I don't know if it's a... I th I've definitely seen the, the scare. I've seen the fear in some organisations actually using their email database after GDPR. I think there's a, there's a fear that have we actually got the right consent? Are we 100% positive? And I think that's, you know, that fear is going to exist for a little bit longer. I think there's still a bit of a hangover after GDPR and it's still, you know, ca causing a few headaches in organisations. Um, but I think that what has typically happened and is human nature is that people feel that they've been there, done it, the 25th of May has been and gone. I don't need to worry about this anymore. And I hope that isn't the case, but I have seen some uh, organizations that have probably become a bit more complacent. And I, I personally hope that we don't kind of fall back into the trap of, oh, well, it's been and done now. We kind of forget and old habits, bad habits start creeping back in. I actually oh. don't know how much of an impact it's really going to have because you know, just taking the most recent um, issue with, with Facebook, you know, and they're saying that they're not going to get the full, you know, the, the big scaremongering is it's 4% of global turnover and that's going to be your fine. And here we have Facebook essentially giving access to 4 million, was it 4 million what, uh, records? 5 million. Think, so, yeah, yeah. Five, so 5 million individual profiles and their data, and they're not likely to be fined the 4% of global turnover. And I think the reality is that, when it comes to email marketing, it's probably the least of people's worries. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's a testing time for the ICO because are they really, are they really going to go as, as strong as they said that they would, as strong as the legislation now allows them to, to enforce it, or are they not? Because if they are lenient and seem to be too lenient, 
then I think you'll have a lot of organizations that will think, well, we won't, it's not really going to affect us. The risk is worth taking. And then it kind of starts a whole new conversation. Until the first one gets fined, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, the, and the first one gets fined for email, because I think mm. the, the greater likelihood is that the fines are going to not have anything to do with email consent and email you know whether it's legitimate interest or you know th those things I think it's going to be actual organizations that are not securing their the personal data it's going to be like Heathrow Airport where yeah. some individual dropped a uh, a USB stick, stick and yeah. and and had loads of data on it you know that's that's the kind of stuff that I think is probably going to come rather than actually any kind of fines from from email. Yeah, well, I saw a, a, like a security report that was uh, that kind of reviewed all of last year's top threats to an organisation. The first one was a cyber attack. The second was a data breach, um, and not having the security in place. And I think that is something that we are going to see every single week because I think that is something that organisations probably have been a little bit too laxed. Um, and that's obviously where, you know, the GDPR, um, the whole emphasis of the GDPR was really to think about the customer and to, to really look after that data. And from that angle, I think it has, you know, I think it has worked in organizations now actually thinking about that more than they were before. So I think that's a real positive thing for marketing as a whole, not just email. Hmm. I think you're right there. Uh, there's, a, there's a trust arc. Um, GDPR compliance status research report and it covers the US, the UK and the EU and one of the really nice things in there when it was looking at and um, there's one particular part of that and it's reasons for investing in GDPR compliance and the highest reason that was given was to meet customer expectations it wasn't about fines it wasn't about negative media coverage it was 59% in the US who said, going for GDPR style compliance to meet customer expectations. 58% in the in the United Kingdom for the same thing. So it shows that it, it's not necessarily the enforcement that is making firms want to change and want to be better, but it's actually because this is now in people's mindsets. It's in the media. People are asking about it. Customers are demanding it and firms genuinely seem to be stepping up which i think is massively positive when you say firms could you be more specific is there a particular industry that you've seen take more of an interest or or, or that have taken it on more so than others um no actually you know I, i've worked with um high street retailers travel industries financial institutions legal institutions educational institutions and I've not seen any correlation between the industry and the mindset. What I've seen is just a general desire to change. What I have seen though interestingly is more of a desire to change from the smaller companies. The, the larger companies seem to have a greater desire to hide behind legal statements or to try and hide behind complicated processes or, or or something else they they try and look for the for the gray areas i don't see that at all from the smaller companies but i have seen that a lot from the large companies 
Do you think it's because their data is in more of a state or they're just the internal bureaucracy of a larger organization just puts bigger barriers into actually achieving, even if they wanted to, they wouldn't mm. be able to because of all of the barriers that, that, that come up from IT, from security, from just the wealth of data that they probably have access to? Yeah, see, I, you know, I've worked with, I work with some large organizations and they have been incredibly proactive in making sure that their customer can trust them and not hidden behind the legal side and really took a hard look at themselves last year and thought, you know what, we really need to up our game on looking after this data and what we have and are we really adding value in our email communications and marketing strategy? And that was a large organization, but what I think the biggest challenge is the organizational culture because if the culture isn't focused on the customer's needs and fulfilling those needs and it's all about the profit, then I think that's where it's that's where it falls down and that's where you end up seeing organizations that will try and hide behind the legal for the commercial gain. Well, there was, um, I think it was Marketo that, that brought out the, the blog where there were two different types of organizations mm. after GDPR, those that went legal first yeah. and made sure that they just just enough covered the the compliance so that they wouldn't get fined and then the second tra um, sort of tribe were the ones that actually made a, a difference and actually focused on the clients that they were working with yeah and i've i think you can that's really evident in people's approach to getting ready for gdpr <laughs> yeah, really because was. those emails that were sent the day before the day of I've, I've presented an example of one where it was literally sent the day after gdpr saying we really care about your privacy we've updated our privacy policy but it was the day after gdpr had no personalization and it was no reply email so they really cared <laughs> but they didn't even need to send those privacy emails no. this is the thing that really that really winds me up is that okay so fine you want to tell people that you're doing this but you don't need to tell them you've updated your privacy policy do it anyway and so every single yeah. person that doesn't work in the email industry associated gdpr with the privacy emails that they received and so you know what kind of trust knock-on effect as it had for the email industry and it's you know it's a bit frustrating trying to explain to people the gdpr is nothing to do with just the privacy policy there's actually a lot more to to it than that or just email because oh, yeah. um steve you made this point um a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about this that email was mentioned was it once or twice in the whole legislation yeah marketing's mentioned twice emails mentioned once in how in, many pages well in something like twenty-five thousand words Okay, so so there you have it. GDPR really has nothing to do with marketing. Not really. That wasn't its goal, anyway. <laughs> no, I can't. I can't imagine the EU legislators going. Okay, let's let's just do a twenty-five thousand page uh, word uh, document just on marketing. It's an interesting point that you make there about um, you know the companies that chose to send those emails that could have potentially been the legal the legal way first right so the legal organization the the legal team advising that this is the belts and braces approach this is what we need to do and the marketing team not necessarily being able to win that battle hmm. um i was speaking to a client so. about this yesterday and they ended up having to go down the legal route just because they it wasn't black and white in terms of the guidance until really last minute and so they couldn't win that battle and so they had to go down the legal route even though they didn't want to um, which I thought was quite interesting. Well 
I I got one of those emails. Actually, it was a um, it was a text message, and it was from my local vet to say that <laughs> I needed I needed to phone them to tell them that I gave them consent in order to contact me about when my my cats needed their vaccinations and things. And you know they don't have a legal team. I've got absolutely no idea where that came from. Did you no then give them all. advice once? Did you call them up and say you didn't need to send this? Because <laughs> I could see you doing that. It's, uh, it's no. a legitimate interest in them sending you that email, right? You want you want to know that your cat's uh, vaccinations are due. This is this is the thing, you know. So, um, Jenna, you were saying that it's maybe from the legal team pushing this out. Well, how did all of this, these small organisations get to that? perspective that opinion that they needed to do this i talked to um my someone who was helping with helping me with sciatica in the build-up to gdpr and i was there getting the treatment for sciatica and they were asking me about what they should do about their website and that you know there, there were so many small businesses who had been frightened through the the lack of information and misinformation and to this day i genuinely i don't know where that came from i think that's well that's the the piece isn't it it's the misinformation there was a lot of noise media picking it up and not really actually translating it into what it really meant and that just created a whole world of confusion oh the i mean the ico should have anticipated it and provided the actual guidance mm. much earlier than they actually did yeah, because I think they they created a lot of these problems so one area that we haven't really touched on is is what the ICO has done since then and what kind of what kind of conversations and advice they have given to to, to businesses uh, Steve could you give us uh, you know could you give us an overview of what they've been covering the the ICO have come out with two messages really. Uh, one message is that they've been clear that there's no grace period, that they are starting to look at things straight away. You know, the the GDPR became law two years ago. It's not that people have now got another two years to to try and get things in place. And the fact that maybe if people are expecting fines from day one, that's not really ever going to happen because the length of time that investigations take is a really long time. We've just seen a, a fine recently for a breach from two years ago. You know, so investigations now will take a long time. But the ICO have also been very want they've been very clear that fines are not the only remedy that they've got. And they don't want to think that people are if they've had a problem, they're just going to be fine. There's other remedies that they have. There's education, there's enforcement notices, and there's uh, there's a, a big push from the ICO every time they release their, their annual report to show that the number of fines that they release is tiny compared to the number of investigations that they have. So that's a really big thing for me, that just because we've not seen the results of the early action doesn't mean there's no doesn't mean that nothing's happening and also we aren't just going to see fines all over the place the ico behind closed doors gets in touch with people and they tell them what they must be doing and this will be happening all the time now 
But do you think the ICO has enough resource to be able to do that? Because it was only last week in the email council that someone it took someone two months to hear back from the ICO about a very simple question. So, you know, how much are they really able to provide in terms of advice if it's taking them two months to reply to a yes, no question? Well, it's not just advice where they're lacking the resource, but investigation teams, legal teams, cybersecurity teams, they've had problems in the last couple of years where people have been poached from the ICO. The, the ICO aren't able to pay the, the salaries of some of the larger commercial entities in the UK. And as the pressure building up to the GDPR increased, a lot of the top staff from the ICO, a lot of the investigative staff were actually poached from organisations who needed skilled employees. So do they have enough resource? No, not a chance. They, they, they are massively, massively under-resourced. But that will be changing. You know, they will they will be increasing their their team size, they will be training internally, and the initial period of under resource it, it won't change, but they definitely don't have enough resource now. So I guess we're unlikely to see huge fines coming up because they simply don't have the manpower to actually enforce the the, the legalities of, of, of what they're coming across and, and, and even the um the advice that they're able to provide again they still don't have the resource to do it so it's unlikely for us to see any fines soon with regards to GDP. I, yeah i would guess two years really that long yeah and mind you i guess if you if you've just said that they're, they're only now finding someone from a breach from two years ago then that's you know i guess companies can rest assured but it doesn't mean that they're not being investigated i guess yeah if you think um, something like the, the Tesco Bank cyber attack in 2016. If you think about the amount of evidence that will have to be collected for that, if you think about the amount of scrutiny that will have to be put on that evidence to, to build a case, and then for that case to be held, for that case to be argued, uh, for the, for the defence to actually be able to have time to to build that defense and and put forward the the evidence and for that evidence to be scrutinized as well it's a huge amount of time and it's only just in the last few weeks that tesco bank were actually fined by the fca for their cyber attack in 2016 two years so for anything big you're talking a long time simply because if, if it was rushed through, then it wouldn't hold up in court if it was challenged. So these cases have to be absolutely watertight. And the the evidence and the time just simply is a huge amount of work. Um, so, yeah, I would guess two years before you, you see the first big, big GDPR fine. So I guess for anyone listening who might be worried if they've... Uh... They might be in breach of GDPR. They might be waiting two years before they hear from the ICO about it. <laughs> Actually, no, I think you'll hear from the ICO very quickly. It's just that will not become public until that investigation behind closed doors and then the, the court case has been held, if it actually goes to court. And I guess, I mean, there's something else that's come up, again, looking at 
what's happened after GDPR and sort of moving away a little bit from the ICO. And this is something before GDPR was a huge concern is, is what, what's going to happen to email volumes? You know, what has happened to email volumes? What have you, what have you come across in terms of the clients that you've worked with and your own personal inboxes, I guess? The yeah, well, I, I've got stats here, but I, I would like to ask you two first, you know, from your personal opinion, what, what have you seen? And I'll compare that to the to the global stats that I've got. I think from a personal mailbox, I saw an immediate reduction after GDPR of the emails that I got, particularly within my Yahoo email account. But I have slowly started to see that creep back up to how it was before. And it was almost like for two weeks, I had a two-week grace and had less emails. And now it started to go back to the levels that it was before GDPR came and put, came into place, which is strange. Maybe the maybe what we were talking about earlier, you know, saying that brands getting complacent. Maybe that's that's the complacency kicking in, and the volume starting to pick back up again. I haven't actually seen a great deal of difference, but I'm a little bit unusual in that I've I sign up to so many email. I mean, being in the industry, I have to sign up to a lot of emails so that I can see what people are doing, and. I, I was getting in the realms of 100 to 150 emails a day, and it's about the same. So some companies I've noticed have stopped emailing me, but I'd say the vast majority, there's been absolutely no change whatsoever in terms of their, their volumes. I think the initial concern around consent sort of petered away when people realized that actually they could use other reasons to continue to communicate. And since with a lot of the brands that I have signed up to, I am actually a customer, they then have, a, a, I guess, they could use legitimate interest or any of the other legal reasons to, to actually contact me. I don't think it's made much of a difference. And certainly with the clients that I work with on a day-to-day -day basis, um, majority of them being in law and professional services, it's almost a negligible difference i think probably the main the main difference for them is that they've actually done a bit of list hygiene and they've removed disengaged contacts and they've just they've just done what we've been preaching to them for the last 10 years that's that's the main difference i wouldn't say it's particularly drastic see that's really interesting because this is what i've heard and personally seen and everybody I talk to says the same thing. Yet, if I look at the the global email volume stats published by Cisco, who do a lot of email monitoring, it shows that email volumes dropped by about 40% in the last six months, 40%. And that's not just spam emails that they're talking about, but emails. And it's it's incredible how much it's it's dropped. So I need to dig into these numbers a little bit more and actually see where these are coming from because the the emails that I've seen in my inbox and everybody that I talk to seems about the same. So the the global stats don't seem to fit with what we are seeing in the UK, and I find that really interesting. I wonder whether these ESPs are perhaps reluctant to announce what the actual impact of GDPR has been on their numbers because most ESPs 
make their money through email volumes and if they are part of public companies reduction of those email volumes could have an impact on their bottom line at the end of the day i wonder whether there's anything around that that is impacting these sort of anecdotal conversations well we've got black friday cyber monday and all of december coming up which are um you know the black friday cyber monday period and Christmas are the two busiest times for email so I think we'll be able to we'll, we'll see that for ourselves whether that's actually the case. I guess it's it's still quite early for us to really make a judgment call because with all of the fear around GDPR I think there would have been blips and dips in the immediate aftermath and now as Jenna as you were saying that has now started to settle back into the norm and what was before GDPR and and maybe by May next year it will be back to to completely to normal but until we have the final stats I guess we won't know really. Have either of you seen anybody else following the path laid out by Jerry Weatherspoons and diluted their entire database? No. No, not any, not any major brands. No. Anecdotally, I've heard a couple of people say that they've deleted too much data because they followed a re-engagement process, which basically failed, and they backed themselves into a corner and had to delete people who probably didn't need to be deleted, but because they didn't follow their re-engagement plan, they've had to. Now, I've not been able to get any names willing to come out on record about this, but there's been, I've heard a couple who've done that, but no one who's deleted the, the full list. No, but why would they? I mean, I think JD Weatherspoons are mad to, to have done that personally. And just for, for, for those people that aren't aware, JD Weatherspoons uh, announced that they were going to stop doing any kind of email marketing. This would have been about a year ago, I think, even. Um, so they don't do any email marketing. But then I guess, do you really need email marketing to sell beer? If you're going to go and have a drink, you're going to have a drink. You don't need an email to, to to convince you to go and visit a pub. It's a very drastic approach to not having, not being comfortable with your data, I think. Maybe. Do you think they're going to start again? I don't think they will. Well, Based on what they've they, they the do, I don't think they will. They do have... Um, a digital presence they've got an app maybe they use push um, and when you when you you purchase things via the app you do get email receipts but they don't do marketing to those people I would be very interested to to find out from them because I've I've worked with quite a few pub and restaurant chains in the past and I think the idea for them to to not email their their customers is is madness, and I, I don't think they would they would go down that approach. But then, Weatherspoon's presence on on the streets is significantly higher than a lot of other pub chains, so maybe they can afford to do that, knowing that there's a Weatherspoon's or two in pretty much every town in the country. Well, the thing is that works if if the trip has been planned or if you're walking by and um it's a case of yeah, in, instead of instead of going straight home you'll you'll stop by there for um for for a drink or get food or, or whatever but 
where email really works is just triggering behavior that isn't quite going to happen anyway. Mm. And this is what marketing is for, right? It's, it's about, um, it's about enticing. It's about promoting. And I can't see how Weatherspoons could fail and lose money by actually promoting what they do. It's yeah, I, I find it very strange. Essentially what they're saying is that email marketing doesn't work and we know that it does. But did they actually say that email marketing doesn't work? Or that they yes, just they deleted their database. <laughs> they deleted their database. So yeah, that's that's them saying that they it didn't work for them. That's fair enough, I guess. That's one company out of thousands. Yeah. Okay, so, you know, thank you so much, uh, Steve and Jenna, for coming to, well, Jenna for coming into, uh, into the office and Steve for taking the time over the, uh, over the phone to talk to us about the aftermath of GDPR and how it's, how it's really affecting the, the email space. I guess just to close us off, Steve, do you want to give us some kind of closing words around your, your kind of final thoughts on, on how it's impacted the industry? Yeah, um, one of the things that I, I like to make sure that is clear is something that I think is missed so much. And it's the misconception that GDPR was here to hammer people, to stop us using data. I've seen quotes from entrepreneurs and companies saying that GDPR is going to be the, the death of innovation and the death of AI. And you know what? I think the exact opposite. Um, my technological background was database design and database development. And over the last five, six years, I looked at the big data explosion um, with, with a suppressed smile, basically. I, it, was, it was a good idea. But with big data, what you have is unstructured data. With unstructured data, you've got a lot of noise. And one of the things that I see with the GDPR is it's forced people to look again at their data, to formalize that data, to look at the benefits, to look at the costs, to look at where they get the data from, look at how they store it and process it, and also how they delete it. There's been too much message in the past, messaging in the past saying just get more data and build up your database and find the value within it. Well, the biggest problem with that is with big data, the largest cost is, and I've seen stats that say 80-90% of the cost of big data solutions is actually filtering out the garbage, trying to find the value with GDPR you're going to have half of that work already done because people are already having to look at the data. And the reason why I think that's going to happen is I've been looking at GDPR since 2012 and I remember the initial proposal for GDPR and I don't have it in front of me, but I'll, I'll paraphrase it. The GDPR was to build trust. It was to build trust in the digital marketplace because consumers who didn't have trust in the digital marketplace wouldn't be happy to share data. With trust, you build the ability for people to share data, a willingness to share data. 
and for that data to be higher quality. Because I don't know about you, but when I sign up for stuff online, I don't share my real date of birth. I don't share my real postcode. I still use my old university postcode. So if we are going to have intelligent data-based solutions, if we are going to have innovation in the digital marketplace based on data, and if we're going to have AI actually really becoming part of our industry, we need data, but not just data, we need good data. And I think GDPR will really help kickstart AI and data innovation because people will be more comfortable, people will be happier to share, and companies themselves are going to be forced to look at that data and understand their value and only collect and store and process what they need. And that would be how I would summarize GDPR. That is a very good summary of GDPR and data. Thank you for listening to this very first podcast. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed listening to our comments around GDPR. And if you want to get in touch with us, uh, drop us an email to email at dma.org.uk. That's email at dma.org.uk. If you agree with us, if you disagree with us, if you want to take part in the conversation, get in touch with us. I've been your host, Lily Boeth, and this has been My Dog Ate My Email, an email podcast from the DMA. I'd like to thank my guest, Steve and Jenna, for this episode, and thank you to everyone at the DMA for helping to make this podcast happen.